Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by one of my talented colleagues, John Check, who is a senior Ruby on Rails engineer working here at Planet Argon, a software consultancy that helps companies with existing Ruby on Rails applications make them better and, as you might guess, maintainable. John Check, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Hi, Robbie. Happy to be here. So this is a this will be a fun conversation because we do technically work together. Um, we haven't seen each other physically in five six months now due to the pandemic, but um, we've been working together for a long time. And so I wanted to not treat this drastically different than any normal conversation I would have with a developer. I will talk about a few things that what we do here as well in the conversation, but this is not a big sales pitch. I promised all the listeners. But with that, John, given your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software? Yeah, I mean, I think that something that's really important and something that we don't see enough, especially in our industry as as a, working with a various uh, client apps is documentation. Uh, a lot of times, it's a, it's whether that be a README or a full-fledged wiki page or Markdown, that kind of stuff really helps onboard new developers and, and shed light onto complex functionality. Uh, another thing I, I believe is good test, a good testing uh, suite, uh, not just a mix of one type or the other, but having a little bit of everything in there. And then, you know, developers uh, over the years that have followed patterns and iterated on those patterns and changed those patterns throughout the application. Something that I find making an app enjoyable to work on and therefore I think maintainable is when there are patterns that are in place across the application that are uniform throughout the entire application, whether that be service objects, you could go like the fat model skinny controller ideology, but you know, uniformity and, uh, and consistency really, really help keep an app going, I feel like. Do you often use the phrase technical debt in your day-to-day work? Yes, I don't really like that word. I think that it's a bit of a misnomer where things are considered technical debt just because they're old and maybe written in a certain way. But I, I found in my workings is that a lot of times when you try to I'm going to rip out this technical debt and make it better. Not not more often than not, but sometimes you will introduce unintended uh, issues um, either directly in that functionality or somewhere else in the application. So I think that the word is is used incorrectly in a, in a lot of sense. So I'm curious a little bit more about the, you know on the con- topic of technical debt, and you're speaking about like let's say older ways of doing things, or maybe it's like using, are you like, can you give me a couple of examples of like, we're talking about like older JavaScript frameworks or something, or just like older dependencies, a little bit of that, or just maybe bad code. And I'm kind of air quoting that because that could be subjective. Yeah. I mean, I think that, well, well, a good example is, is when you, when you open up a method and it is, you know, 50, hundred, 200 lines long, which is not something It's not, um, it's not common, but we do see that methods that are overly complicated. Solo developers uh, tend to write code in a way that is unreadable, except by them. And it's not because they're bad developers, right? Everybody, uh, I think for the most part in this industry is putting in a good amount of effort and 
a lot of times it can just be because they don't have a team to collaborate with. Those kind of situations happen. You asked about JavaScript frameworks. It's just kind of a funny topic because two years ago, we decided to replace Backbone JS in one of our clients' applications. And that process has taken a long time to get through the door. I think that the client's application will be better because of it. But I wonder if we could have went with a different approach. We decided to replace it with React, by the way. But I, I think that sometimes those decisions are like, this is a framework that nobody, no one supports anymore. And it's really bad. And it's written in a, in a way that is not up to modern standards or whatever. But taking a step back and being like, but is this something that is going to really improve, you know, on the client's life. And I, and I think in the situation I mentioned, it will, but a lot of times it doesn't. And just leaving it like that, you know, is fine because maybe that app doesn't, isn't going to be used in, in the next five years. Replacing, you know, back when JS with React won't have an effect on it because the client won't be using that application, you know, to, to keep that going. So it's kind of, it's kind of a mixed bag, I feel like. Yeah, I don't know that we often get to at least with some of our clients, get a good indication of when they think the, let's say, the end of life of the application is, or do they just kind of foresee it, hopefully living as long as their business is around? And I don't know, I don't know that anyone can usually answer that question. So it's a, that's a tricky thing. If you knew that that same application was going to needed to be worked on in 10 years from now, what decisions would you make versus maybe it's still around in five years? It's an interesting like predicament there, I think, that it's not, it's not super clear usually. You've been at Planet Oregon now for seven years and don't want to get too far off this technical debt topic, but do you feel like your own understanding of what, what you would maybe consider technical debt has evolved over the years? Yeah, I, I do. I think when you start working, especially as like a junior, you kind of feel like you, you kind of just live in that environment that you're put in, whatever applications that, that you're working on when you first start. And when you become a mid-level developer, you get a lot of, I mean, at least I did, you get a lot of opinions on things. And it's like, you know, we really should be using best practices everywhere. And this Ruby uh, 1.9 syntax has got to go, right? We got to get this out of here. And as I've kind of matured as, uh, as a software developer, I've kind of eased off that a little bit. I think that best practices are always, when you should always try and use best practices when applicable. But that doesn't mean spending, you know, two to three days going through the application and fixing, you know, arrows like the, the arrow keys into the uh, you know, the JSON the JSON keys that we, you know, had in Ruby two. That does that really bring any value to the application? I, I really don't know. It's I, I I feel like I feel like now I wonder like oh if I'm working in that file yeah I'll change it there but I'm not going to go through and scan the whole application and look for things like that. Unless they're causing developer, you know, like fatigue, like you're getting a thousands of deprecation errors in your in your test suite, or you know, there's actual real world consequences for not using the latest and greatest. That yeah, that's how I feel. I think that you grow as a developer, just like every you know, people grow in all sorts of different ways, and you definitely grow as a developer. That's how you view certain things. So you know, earlier one of the things you had mentioned about well maintained code is that there's a healthy mix of automated tests i'm assuming automated tests is that what you meant by that yep within like a code base and so do you recall some challenges that you've encountered while working on say inheriting an existing code base yeah for sure um a lot of times there's just not a fully fledged out test fleshed out test suite for us to work with 
And it could be difficult to work with applications like that. Also, um, we've we've inherited test suites that are really brittle. So when you change one thing, it might affect hundreds, if not thousands, maybe not thousands, but definitely hundreds of tests down the line. I think people need to be really conscious about when they're writing their tests, how do I isolate this as best as I can to what I'm trying to test? Are my factories set up in a way that they can actually be flexible or are they set up in a way that are only applicable to this scenario that I'm working in right now? Funnily, when I first started working here, uh, it was on a very large um, application that we still have as a client. And one of the issues that we had was we did a giant rebuild for them. That meant that we didn't have the time to maintain the test before launch. So after launch, we had a test suite that was broken. And I remember working with a former developer here at Planet Argon to getting that test suite running. Rather than kind of iterate on the tests, then we just kind of fixed them. So we ended up fixing a lot of kind of unoptimized tests. And we ended up with a test suite that was taking over 30 minutes to run. And then we're not talking like a lot of tests. I think we were talking about maybe like 1,200 so over the years, I've, I've, we've been able to kind of get that test suite, not only improve the coverage from, I believe it was around like 58% when we first got it, that test suite passing again after the uh, after the rebuild. We've, the, the test suite right now, I believe, is at like 80, 85% test coverage, and it runs at just under six minutes. And a lot of that, I can't, there's not like one thing, there's not a silver bullet to fix that. It's a lot of, you know, doing a lot of RSpec profiling and looking at other ways people have solved this. One of the big things that we did was rather than in our feature test, rather than have a user use the sign-in form every time, uh, we have one feature test for that. We have a feature test that, that works that says, hey, our sign-in works, right, for our admin side. And then for every other feature test, we just use Warden to directly log in the, the users, create that session. And that, I think that by itself shaved off like five minutes, which was a big win. So not having a feature test that has to log in each time, we kind of skip through and just assume that they're already signed into the application. Yeah, you know, test. What is your test work testing? Why am I testing that my login works five hundred times? Like you don't. That doesn't make a lot of a sense. Test that it works. Make sure that it works. Rather have a dedicated test for that, but then move on. When you're checking, when you're working on your checkout flow, you don't. You know, you're not worried about that. You know that your user can log in. You can always. You can already assume that because they've got stuff in their cart. One of the things I'd like to dig in with you on is the topic of working in the consulting slash agency world that we exist in, because a lot of the guests that I have on the podcast are in the product world. And so I know that you haven't, you know, directly, we work with companies that have, that are in the product world. And so we've kind of, to some degree, played a part in that, but you're very much have been your whole development career so far been in the consultative external side of that kind of equation quite a bit. And so and you are someone that may, within like say a course of a week, may work on one, two projects, maybe up to f- two to four projects, maybe some weeks if you need to jump in and help out a couple of things. For those listening, could you share a little bit about how that's how you believe that's helped shape and de- develop your skills as a software engineer? Yeah, so I, I don't kind of know what it's like to work in. Um, I mean, we've had flashes of where you know you work on a project for multiple months, but we always go back to that consultative kind of approach where you're working on multiple apps. So I'm kind of just kind of used to it. I remember when I first started, it was a little bit jarring just because it felt like you were just moving, it felt like you were just moving office spaces, you know, around around the office and different code bases felt differently. It's, you're never going to be able to jump right in. Like if I was going from 
four different applications that I've never worked in in a week, that would be a nightmare. But since you kind of just get, you kind of like have that in the back of your mind, like, oh, I remember all of this stuff about this application. And you just have to kind of shift gears. I always double check because sometimes I haven't worked on an application for, you know, four, maybe six months or a year here. And I always need to make sure that, hey, I should probably check if they upgraded Rails or Ruby on this application or did anything change? Is there like a change log for the application that I can kind of review and look at what has happened since I've been in this code base last? It's also it's also really important to kind of uh, guard your time. I think that it's much more effective to work on uh, one application over two days and then save your other two days of work, two to three days of work, maybe to work on the other two applications, then try to work on all three or you know possibly four of them each day. Uh, fragmenting your time like that is probably not the best way to be productive on those on those uh, projects. I think that's some some good ideas around thinking about context switching. Do you have any sorts of tools or mental exercises that you're able to go through to help you dive back into? I know you like mentioned like looking to see if there's some changes in an application you've worked on in a long time, but for like day to day work, like how do you? Okay, I'm switching back over. I need to like I just got out of this big feature on one project done. It's sent over a PR or whatever your process might look like, and then. Now I got to go jump and look at some other project and get focused there. Do you feel like there's you have like any sort of process or to help you get in that mindset space effectively? Not nothing really particularly. You know, I I'll you know move over the to the directory where the app is and make sure I pull down the newest revision and just kind of you know take it slow and you know don't feel like that you know there's you know a ton of pressure to you know, get started like on the first minute, you know, so you're not, you're not feeling overwhelmed when you switch over. Um, but yeah, just kind of re revisiting all of the things that this application does. What does it, what does it look like? What does the code base look like? Oh yeah. I remember like this app has, you know, oh man, like sidekick instead of delayed job and stuff like that. It's kind of just all like, I can't think of like a, a meditative state that uh, I, I do to, kind of start on another application. It's kind of just all I've known. So maybe I'm just used to it. It'd be, it'd be interesting to hear somebody from product talk about or the product world, talk about uh, this kind of thing, because I'm sure that they have challenges, but this is kind of just something that I've adopted. It doesn't really bother me that much anymore. And if you're talking like working on like five applications in a week, that might be a bit different story, but thankfully we don't have anything like that. I've been secretly hoping I'll talk to someone about this and they'll tell me that they have different scented candles that they'll switch over to for each project. That way they can get in the right mood or ambiance for, Oh, that project. That's, that's the Cedar project. This is my, this is my, uh, you know, progressive metal project. This is my (laughs) hardcore punk project. You know, I'm curious, do you listen to a lot of music when you're coding? I do. Yeah. I do. (laughs) Um, yeah, I find that it's helpful just to keep outside noises, especially since we're working from home. Curiously, I actually have less minutes listened to Spotify in 2020 than any other year, which I thought was interesting. Hmm. I wonder if that has something to do with working from home. That's interesting. I think I noticed too, yeah, in my, my last FM stats showed that the, the amount of music I've listened to has been lower. And I'm like, I feel like I'm listening to music still just as much, but I'm wondering if maybe I'm on more Zoom calls I don't, I don't know. Something, something, something's different. I haven't quite figured it out yet. So I, I, I have a theory that it's just that 
you know, you have headphones in for Zoom calls most of the time. So all of our calls are digital now and it's kind of nice to pull them off or take take your headphones off and that's true. Give your ears a bit of a rest. That's probably more accurate reason. Another thing I'm curious about some of our projects that we work on, we, we, we are the development team on them and there's no other developers really involved. Usually we're inheriting from other developers, but occasionally we do work with projects where they have an internal development team and we're going to provide some say staff augmentation, which is kind of like they're hiring a couple of us for a while to hopefully speed up their development on working on some new features or helping them debug things or helping them with some consulting or uh, strategy. There's a lot of different ways that we do that. I've been doing this for a long time myself, but uh, one of the things I always like to talk with people about is what it's like to be a guest in another team's code base, given that you have that perspective. We hadn't had a conversation really about this ahead of time, so I just wanted to kind of open it up. Like, What do you believe are a few things that you've learned over the years on how to integrate yourself into another team, knowing that you're going to be kind of a temporary play a temporary part of that project and kind of how do you how do you start that process on your end so um a couple things that i do usually is you know other than just kind of get yourself familiar with the code base a lot of times you're kind of put in as you're kind of put in to do like a feature so i don't spend a whole lot of time trying to encompass the entire application getting a good grasp of what the where where things are and what the application like the functionality functionally does is really important but I found that for a lot of these times when we come in as guests, it's usually for like a short engagement, maybe two to three months. And we're working on usually a handful of features. Getting acclimated in the areas that you're working in is paramount. You know, am I going to be writing that? Like, am I going to be spending most of my time integrating with this third-party API? How does this application integrate other APIs? And following the patterns that the, that the developers in the, on, the, on the current team have, have uh, practiced, but also not being afraid to, to, you know, maybe reach out with them and ask, like, you know, is, is, maybe we could do this a little bit different. Because a lot of times I found that most uh, the teams are very receptive to that kind of conversation. You know, developers are very communicative, I feel, and are willing to talk about that kind of stuff. So not being afraid to, you know, ask, you know, why things are being done that way, but also being aware that you know, you're a guest in this, in this repository. So it's important that, you know, it's not just that they're not just hiring you for your code, they're hiring you for your expertise. And it's important to be able to communicate that when, uh, when applicable. We'll be back with our interview with John in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers on social media and or writing a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, do you know someone in the industry that I should be interviewing on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And I appreciate those that have been doing that recently. And now, back to our interview with John Check. You know, as you reflect back on the, the times you've been part of working on a with another team where they had their own developers, are there any things you've learned maybe the hard way about maybe what you would avoid doing in the future or, or encourage people to avoid doing if they were to kind of go into a new to them situation? I think that it's important to ask a lot of questions about what you're working on um, with the development team because a lot of times when we're the sole developers, we kind of have control over how we want things to look and whatnot. Um, I've definitely submitted PRs where 
change that, that had to be that had to go through a change uh, change log or a phase where you know they were like oh we want to do it this way and we do it that way and it could have saved a lot of time if i would have just asked those questions beforehand so just be mindful that certain teams do things certain ways and it's not your job to <laughs> kind of change their coding practices uh you're there to help out and uh and get get some features through the door Another topic I wanted to dig into with you is given the, the time that you've been at Planet Oregon, we've been running internships for a, a decent amount of that time. Um, probably our first intern was probably like eight or nine years ago, but I think we've been consistently doing it for five years, give or take, maybe maybe longer. You've personally played a huge role in that internship program over the years. And so setting aside why we as a company prioritize hosting internships on a regular basis, what do you believe that you personally get out of that experience of being able to be a mentor for a budding uh, software engineer? I mean, I think that there's a lot of knowledge to be learned on both sides. Uh, new engineers uh, ask a lot of questions, and a lot of times they ask a lot of why questions, and sometimes you don't have the answers for those, so you can kind of reflect on that and really kind of steal on that and learn to learn some inter- something introspectively about, about yourself or about your coding practices. Why do, I do, why do I do things like this? Well, I don't know. I've been doing them like this forever. Uh, and maybe I should maybe I should kind of take a step back and look at look at um, how I'm doing that. And teaching other people is really satisfying uh, because you get to see them learn new concepts and be excited about that, like you were probably when you learned about that. So it's kind of exciting to see and be a, be a, being a part of that uh, career process for a lot of people over the years has been really uh, I've been really thankful for being being able to do that. You know, do you notice that in other in your peers on the in the team that they've their involvement in internships, you can you've seen them grow as the developers themselves. Yeah, it definitely. Um, whether it be like collaboration or coding practices or just like the way that they do things, um, the, how they set up their local environment. They, you know, they they change. They might change the way they do it because they see somebody come in and the intern like some in, uh, like an intern is doing something that's totally new and you've been doing something the same way for four years like wow that's really cool i'm glad that they showed me that why do you think there there are companies out there where they've don't offer internships on a, on a semi-regular basis what do you think are some reasons developers or teams might say well i don't think that we're we can do that right now i think that might be a sign of a team that is is probably a little bit stressed out or a little bit you know, they feel like that they can't stop working. They can't see the forest through the trees kind of thing where like if they take, oh man, if I take 20% of my day to help with this intern, I'm not going to be able to get my stuff done. So maybe that's coming, then that kind of trickles up through the the project manager and the account manager and um, the product owner, you know, if you're a product, if you're at a product shop where it really, it really is a top-down kind of principle. If the develop, if the developers don't feel like they can take a break and and you know do some, maybe do something. And it's not like you're not going to be doing work. A lot of times you're doing a lot of shadowing sessions, so you just have someone looking over your shoulder. Um, even that, you know, if somebody asking a question about what you're doing, if that's going to impact your deliverables enough where you're going to get you know, your man, your manager is going to be like, hey, what's going on? probably, an, I don't want to say unhealthy team, but probably a team that could probably step back a little bit and look at, you know, how they're, how that team is being ran. You know, the, hearing you talk about that um, makes me think about also teams that 
are typically only comprised of, say, senior developers. You know, we, I know that we've worked with some clients in the past where they've struggled to bring on junior developers for whatever reason, and it feels like a very similar problem. Is there enough time, or it's going to be, it's going to prevent me from moving as fast on things? What sort of advice could you offer to people like that are, say, mid senior level people that are like, well, I don't know that like this is the right time. I I would say that you would be surprised at what somebody that is eager and hungry to learn can accomplish in a day with a, with a little bit of uh, guidance. I think that there's this misnomer that interns or junior developers don't deliver value until six months or I've heard up to like a year, which is, I think is just fat. It's just false on a lot of levels. Um, I, I'm obviously, you know, everyone's different, but you really, I feel like they misjudge the value of having somebody new on the team provides not just through throughput either. Also, like I was talking about the introspective on what you're doing, you know, as a, as a developer, they ask new questions and really um, allow you to kind of take a step back and, look at how your development practices could be could be changed for the better. I'm curious about, while we're talking to those developers that might be like, well, I don't know if this is maybe the right time to do internships, or I don't know that I'm maybe a good fit for that, or I've never done that before. I've always used to wonder that if one of the reasons why we were hesitant to do it in the first place was that we were afraid that we weren't going to provide anything of value to them, and then I didn't want to waste someone's time because I was like, I don't know that I can actually teach someone how to do this stuff because I don't know how I quite learned it. And so I'm curious, like, what does it look like on a day-to-day level, typically in our internship program for like you as a senior developer of the team? Like what sort of like engagement and situations are you actually technically participating in? So usually um, I'm, I'm playing uh, like a, a role for the interns that's yeah, doing a lot of, you know, I don't want to say code reviews. We do, we do code reviews for sure, but those are only part of it. Um, a lot of it is just sitting down with them and talking about concepts and maybe they, a lot of, like I found that when they submit a PR, you know, they might be, have gone in a little bit of the wrong direction rather than trying to convey that in a pull request, which is that that has value. But I found that, hey, let's set some time aside and go into this conference room and talk about this. And you see, I found that people absorb a lot more information that way and they learn a lot more. And interns are really appreciative of that uh, because, you know, you're taking your time out of the day to talk to them, which, you know, we're fine. I'm fine with. And they also come away with that learning so much more, I feel like, than they would you know, trying to parse through all of these concepts and these principles through a PR that they might not know about. And with these types of conversations and topics, are these like full day type things? Or are these a couple hours here and there? Have you found that there's been some effective ways of organizing and scheduling that type of those types of conversations with them? Yeah, I think that I would always want to keep it under a, at least an hour maximum. If it was just like one PR, I do pull in other like it, maybe one in, if an intern submitted a PR and the other like let's say we have like three interns and only one of them was that uh, was uh, the, uh, the author of the PR that we want to review a lot of times I'll just I'll try to wrangle all three of them into a meeting and you know kind of uh, have a little bit of like a mini I don't know what's the word 
like a flash talk or something like that about a topic that I, w- I want to kind of impart on them. But yeah, I mean, uh, in terms of like organization, you, I mean, usually it's just, <laughs> for me, it's usually just, uh, you know, sharing my screen and kind of walking through concepts, taking time to ask if they have any questions about things and answering them and like making sure that they know that it's okay to be like, hey, I don't know what you're talking about. What was that word you just used, you know? You know, and know that we're recording this in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, if anyone listening is not aware that there's a pandemic, there is one. But what sort of adjustments have you seen us need to make to make remote internships work well? Yeah, a lot more structure. That ad hoc kind of approach where, oh, let's let's all jump in this conference room for like 30 minutes because it's open in the app, you know, like in the afternoon. That doesn't really work anymore. Um, you've got to be way more organized. Um, because your calendar is now a reflection of your availability. And I guess it always was, but um, it's hard. It's a lot more difficult to, to pull people in ad hoc like that. Um, you've got to have a lot more structure, a lot of planning. Um, in terms of like extra steps that I believe are important, um, shadowing sessions are really nice. Like there's a lot of value gained from that, allowing people to shadow you while you're coding remotely then they can kind of just view your whole screen. It's a lot easier for them. Um, but yeah, I would just say, uh, the pandemic has made me become a lot more organized when it comes to like my calendar. I'm curious to also, you know, for those listening, uh, could you share a little bit about the type of work that interns come in and do, or are they working on some pet project for us that we have interns? Like I've, I've talked to some people where they'll have, they'll set up a type of an app requirements, document and then they kind of pass it to interns and they're like, okay, while you're here for the next few months, get as far as you can on building this thing. And then they just repeat that process with the next intern cycle. How do we do things at Planet Argon? Yeah, this is the thing I'm really passionate about. And I was really a big advocate for this when we started doing interns a few years back because my internship that I had out of code school was a little bit of lackluster. It was just like you described where it was on a hey, we've always wanted to have this project worked on and there's no code base for it. Or there's like a, there's like a code base from two years ago. Let's see, just see how far you can get on it. Oh, and it's also written in a language that you don't know. <laughs> so um, here at Planet Argon, uh, we try to do our best to emulate the, either your first 30, 60, 90, however long the internship is, days of being a developer. So giving you that snapshot of what it would be like if you were a junior developer at Planet Argon. So that would mean that uh, we would get your laptop set up with your working environments and you would then be assigned real world tickets, tickets that the, either the client has requested, but we don't have the re- we haven't had the resources yet to get to them or tickets that the client has approved that we've created that would be nice to haves. But yeah, they're working on real world code bases Flaws in the hall. Um, the funny, the the it's so interesting hearing interns talk about. Man, this application is so. I just never thought how large the applications that real world code bases are, and that was like a shock for me when I started at uh, Planet Argon. You know, back in 2014, is like this application is so large, and that's kind of. Uh, it's always fun to hear and talk about that. But to get to your point, I think that we try to impart on them like a real world experience. You know. What do you hire a junior developer to do when you're at an agency or product shop? 
it's not to work on some greenfield application right out the gate. That's going to be done by somebody that's more senior and you can uh, rely on that being a good bedrock setting. It's not some, like having a, having somebody that has no experience doing that really is setting them up almost to fail. I feel like uh, it's just not really fair to either party. I, I hadn't even thought about it from maybe the, the side of just, you know, asking them to build something from scratch, knowing that they probably did some of that in like a boot camp or in their computer science classes or however they were learning. Like there's always like learning to build things from scratch, but really if like not having the experience of having done that a number of times, but how you would approach a new application differently and then having to be responsible for maintaining it down the road. I've always been worried about like having them work on projects and not feel like it ever got to see any real world usage in some way of like, is this actually doing something? Cause a lot of the, I would imagine a lot of projects that people work on early on in their education cycle is their proof of concept projects. They might be put up on their portfolio type of fun thing, and they might use it themselves maybe occasionally, and then they forget that, it, you know, they don't use it anymore. So it does, they don't necessarily need to maintain it. And there's not like an active user base in the same way. So they're responding to bugs from other people or encountering, but in the real world, there are applications by that are used in unpredictable ways and bugs pop up that no one would have anticipated. And those, you got to figure out how to get, build those skills up to debug those. And that's a difficult thing to probably train people early on, but I don't know when you, th- you got to throw them into that at some point. Right. And so, I mean, we did that with you when you started, like you needed like that, like this, we don't know what the problem is. Just, you're going to have to come up with some skills to figure out how to diagnose the problem and solve it. So I'm, I'm glad that we, we, we do it that way. I'm and that aspect of like, simulating in a way or it's like it's like it's like almost like a trial run for what that as you said like that what their first job is going to be like and, and so that that's good as well do they do you often get them to be able to work directly with clients or is this pretty much internal focused uh no they interface with our clients just like a, a normal developer would um yeah i mean they're they're in jira right now like a lot of times they always look shocked i'm like hey can you just write uh write the client and ask them if it's okay you know with your approach you're like really okay, <laughs> but yeah, they, they interface with our clients. Um, one of the goals for the internship program is that they uh, they at least have one ticket go from that the ticket life cycle of being you know created and ready to be worked on to all the way to being closed. So that's always a goal we hit. We don't always get there, but you know a lot of times we'll send them bug tickets that we don't know <laughs> the solution for, and it, they they don't quite get there. But I would say like ninety five percent of the time we make sure that they get a ticket closed and pushed up to Prague. Hi there. Do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon would love to meet them. We're offering a $1,000 referral bonus. Send someone our way, and if they sign up for services with Planet Argon, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And in return, you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail, just for knowing the right person. Hop on over to planetargon.com slash referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com slash referrals. Thanks. Another thing that I know that you're, you've definitely helped kind of take the lead on within our team is helping our team adhere to our at least our own set of, say, styles when it comes to coding styles, 
um, whether that be coding conventions and things like of that nature, or I know we often work with uh, some teams where they have their own and we need to kind of adhere to and work around that as well. But what are some strategies that you feel like you've been able to take to help create some more continuity, knowing that most of the projects that we inherit come from different people and they might have had their own style or none at all, or they went through multiple developers and that happens as well. But what are some strategies that you've been able to take and how do you also, sub question would be, how do you have those conversations with the team to like make changes to our conventions? Yeah, so I feel like this prime, this is kind of not a unique problem to just consulting, but it feels much more acute where you might in a product world, you might have, you know, multiple applications, you know, we have dozens, right? How do you, how do we make sure that the team is all on the same page for coding practices? So one of the things I came up with was uh, creating our own fork of the RuboCop gem. And all that is, is just a wrapper for the gem, but What's inside it, we uh, have all of our style guides and our Rubo, all of our cops are um, in sync with the one another. So rather than having to configure RuboCop for dozens of applications, you can just install this gem and uh, you will be good to go. And actually, it is actually a public repository on our GitHub. So if someone listening would like to use that, um, it's uh, Argon RuboCop. But yeah. That, so that was a problem that we've tried to solve, making sure that how do we keep everyone on the same page using these, these, uh, these community-built uh, tools? And that's one that I feel has really helped us. Um, it's not foolproof. Uh, we have applications that are on a little bit older versions of Ruby and Rails, but the gem, I believe, does support, I think, Rails 4 up to Rails 6. The coding practices change a little bit uh, between the versions. Yeah, that has been a really big help. You asked about how we go about making changes to that in a team uh, with our team base. Uh, basically, what we did is that we agreed on some base rules. And whenever anybody wants to make a change to that, all they do is just open a PR on the the gem itself. And our, the team would then uh, iterate over that and kind of decide if they want to implement that or not. Another thing you had touched on early on was documentation and whether that be readmes, wikis, you know, things in Confluence, what have you. What, what type of documentation have you found to be the most provide the most long term value? Because I don't know that you might we might work on projects where there's a lot of documentation. Sometimes it's been around for a while, but it's maybe not always maintained anymore itself. And have you found that there are certain types of documentation that you've when you've inherited projects, it's like, well, I'm so glad that at least they had this. Yeah. Um, I mean, in the best case scenario is like a fully fledged developer documentation where like every model has a description of what it does in that document. And, you know, maybe a brief overview of the, the things that it, that it, uh, that it touches and interacts with in the application. Um, that would be, those are like the, like <laughs> grade a top tier, documentation when it comes to it. It's obviously only as valuable if it's maintained or not. So, you know, there's some tools. I don't, I, I can't remember the names off their head, but there's some tools that will self-document for you and build out like a, like a markdown file. Um, those are really, really neat when they work. <laughs> they don't always work. It kind of, that also depends on how readable the code is itself. So that's kind of like another thing is like self-documenting, you know, the code like methods that don't use shorthand. That's like one of my big pet peeves in coding is like 
when people will not type out number, they'll type out NO and they'll have a method that says like invoice NO, you know, calc. It's like, what is that even doing? You know, like just being very explicit with your, your names and Ruby is a, is a, we love it so much because it's so human readable. So embrace that and kind of, uh, self-document your own code a little bit when it comes, uh, you come down to writing your own methods. Excellent. So a couple of quick last questions. So let's imagine there's someone listening right now that has been working in part of a team for a while. Maybe they work in the consulting world and they haven't, maybe they brought up with their client or their project managers like, hey, there's some technical debt in this application or there's some things that I'm constantly hitting my head against the wall with here and it's slowing me down and it's costing, you know, it's, it's costing everything that we have to do costs more because of that but the product owner client what have you has has said not right now maybe later a few too many times so they've kind of given up asking anymore and they just assume they don't care anymore Um, outside of like crossing their fingers hoping for another client what advice could you offer them on how to try reapproaching that conversation with the product owner client after listening to this podcast episode? I think that most clients and most product owners want to want to improve value in their application. Value isn't always intrinsically, you know, calculated based on like strict metrics. Like, oh, is this going to improve our revenue by X or is this going to improve our uh, response time, you know, by a certain magnitude? Um, developer happiness is a metric that, will create a more maintainable and more uh, more valuable application to work on. So do, do, I would say do your best to convey why do you want to make this change and what value is it going to bring to the application? Is it replacing a library that's no longer supported? That's maybe they maybe you aren't going to see value immediately, but two like one to two years down the road when that now is blocking a Rails upgrade, or Ruby upgrade, and now you have to go and replace that library and put all that work in then, when you could have just done it maybe a year or two back, that's providing value. It's allowing you to keep the application moving forward with uh, the times. So I would just say, do your best to convey, are you wanting to, what, what kind of values is gonna put, or what values is gonna add to the application and how can we actually calculate that in a in like a measurable way that somebody that might not be very technical can understand? Thanks. Some good advice there. With the last few quick questions that I ask everybody, what non-software technical type related book do you often find yourself recommending to people in our industry? Uh, I, I always recommend uh, Mirakami's uh, IQ84. It's just a book I read every couple of years. It's a great, great novel. If you haven't picked it up, I highly recommend it. Cool. I'll definitely uh, include a link to that in the show notes for everybody. And where can listeners best follow your thoughts on software development online? Uh, you can reach out to me at uh, johnatplanargon.com. I'm not very active on Twitter. I do have a Twitter. It's a reality check. Uh, so you can hit me up there. But um, yeah, feel free to reach me, reach out to either of those uh, avenues. Excellent. And we'll definitely include some links to that in the show notes. And well, it's been such a delight having you join us on Maintainable, John. Thanks so much for talking shop with us. Thanks for having me on, Robbie. Appreciate it. 